So there are sermon notes. If you didn't get any on the way in, just put your hand up and the stewards can bring them around. So here we are at the end of Exodus. And once again, it's a very long passage. I had six whole chapters this week. Um, So you're going to get definitely the edited highlights in the reading. So we'll start at Exodus chapter 35 and verse 4. And I'll be skipping through various verses. So it's on page 94 in the Church Bibles. Exodus 35, verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate, breastpiece. And then skipping forward to verse 20. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. And then to chapter 36 and verse 2. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Ahiolab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. And then the next chapters are a long description of all the bits they built to make this tabernacle. I'm just going to read one section from chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made the atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. At the two ends, he made them (coughs) of one piece with the cover. The cherubim had their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other, looking towards the cover. And then finally, from chapter 40 and verse 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. 
Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain. And he set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar, and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the south sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you were listening carefully and think back a month, you might have thought, hang on a minute, haven't we heard all this before? And the answer is yes, because it's all about building the tabernacle, the kind of portable temple God gave the Israelites so he could live among them and so they could know his presence in the same intimate way they had when he met them on Mount Sinai. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapters 25 to 31, when God gave Moses detailed instructions about how to make the tabernacle. And here, in chapters 35 to 40, it describes how they actually built it. And guess what? They're almost identical. They followed God's instructions to the letter. But why the repetition? It's not as if the author of Exodus had to reach a certain word count in his essay and needed to repeat a bit to make up the numbers. God, you've all done it. <laughs> in the Bible, if things are repeated, especially if they're repeated close together, like they are here, then it's done to make a particular point. If you remember back to when we looked at Mark's Gospel last year, we discovered this structure called a chiasm, a kind of word sandwich, where an idea or words are repeated to sandwich a middle bit, 
and how it's meant to point you to think about how the parts are related to each other. And what's been in the middle here? It's what we looked at in the last couple of sermons. First, in chapter 32, the people fail big time when they make an idol in the shape of a golden calf and they worship it. They fail so badly that God says he won't go with them anymore. From here on, they're on their own. And then last week in chapters 33 and 34, we saw how the people mourned over their sin because they realized just how much they lost. How having God's presence with them had come to mean so much to them. And now it was gone. But we also saw how Moses pleaded with God for the people. And in the scene on the mountain, God revealed himself again to Moses. He declared his name, the Lord, and proclaims his character. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. A very solemn declaration of God's holiness, that sin must be punished, and its effects extend even over the generations yet also a declaration of his mercy and forgiveness. That for those who repent, his forgiveness and mercy extend not just to three or four, but to thousands. So now we stand at the cusp of the story of Exodus. How is it going to go for the Israelites? They know how badly they've messed up, how they've sinned. And they know the holiness of God, that sin can't just be ignored. But they've also heard of his mercy, his forgiveness. So how will it go for them? Will it be judgment or mercy? How will anyone know if their repentance is genuine? That they really have turned around and started to walk in God's ways. And that's where today's reading comes in. Because these same people who'd given Aaron the gold to make the calf idol, now give Bezalel, the craftsman, all he needs to make God's tabernacle. And how do they make it? They do it exactly like God had said. That's why there's all this repetition here. God told them how to do it, and that's precisely how it was done. In this at least, they were going to listen to God and do just as he said. The repentance was genuine. Because repent means to turn around and to start going the other way. Would they mess up again? Well, yes, certainly. Not in Exodus, but in the book of Numbers. We read how they had a major failure of trust on the very borders of the promised land. But that lies in the future. Here and now, they are going to do things God's way. 
And what was the result? It was blessing and confirmation of the thing they had hoped for. That rather than leaving them forever, God's own presence in the cloud of his glory came down on the tabernacle. A physical sign that he would still be with them. Assurance that they had received his mercy. That the relationship was restored. But is that the best way to think about it? Obey God and receive his blessing. Disobey him and receive his punishment. Is it that automatic? To answer that, we need to think of the Psalms we looked at over the summer. Yes, there is a general principle that obedience brings blessing. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. A picture of stability and security for those who walk in God's ways. Yet we also have psalms that show it isn't simply automatic. The psalms of lament, crying out to God when things go badly for us, even when we're trying to walk in God's ways, and how the wicked seem to prosper so often. It isn't automatic. Do good to get the good and avoid the bad, like something to be bought and sold, a kind of trade deal. God isn't looking for that kind of bargain. What he's looking for is a relationship, a change that comes from the heart, a heart and mind that long for him, that want to do the right thing for his sake, not just for any reward. Maybe that's why it isn't automatic. If we think about it, perhaps all of us start our relationship with God because we need him to do something for us. Maybe we're conscious of sin and need to be forgiven. Perhaps we're alone and lost and we need a friend, a guide. And it's not as if we could offer him anything in return. We come with nothing. And we receive what he gives as a gift, pure and simple. We start our lives with God as takers, not givers. And we know his blessings. And we know he gives us his laws to live by, to be his people. And walking in his ways, keeping his commandments is a source of blessing and security. But do we risk falling into the mindset, I obey God, I keep his commandments just because I want his blessing, for things to go well with me? Do we want to make it into a kind of bargain, like a trade deal between us and God? I will follow you if you bless me. Because walking in God's ways does usually bring blessing. It's not a guarantee in that way. Sometimes God's people experience great hardship. And what then? Where does our relationship with God stand? Because what he wants isn't a bargain kind of relationship, where we follow him for the benefits it brings, or to avoid problems if we don't. But what he calls us to is something more, 
What he wants is a relationship, that he lives among his people and is accessible to them. Yes, but for them to be people who come to him out of love and not duty. The command of Jesus is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, to love. And love is something that goes beyond the status of a bargain. You give me this and I will give you that. Love occupies all of the heart and mind in the other for their sake. To see that, look at two Psalms. Psalm 42, where the writer says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then in Psalm 122, I rejoiced, or in the old translation, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord today. The kind of love we're looking for is a longing for God's presence, for his company, to be with him, to worship him, to meet with him, not solely because of what he can do for us, but because of who he is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We, we cannot bargain with God. We have nothing to offer him that he needs. But what he does offer us above everything is himself, a relationship with him, to know him, to be his people, to live in his ways because it's what we want to do, not because we must. When you love, you try to please the other. Not because of what you can get out of it. Although there are blessings in seeking the best for the other. But in love, for the sake of the other. Probably none of us is there yet. But here is something to aspire to. To pray for. To grow into. That our relationship with God be something pure and selfless. Out of love for him and not just reward for ourselves. And so we come to the end of our time in Exodus. It's one of the foundational books of the Bible story, but what have we seen there? We've seen that God remembers his promises and is faithful to them. And that even at our lowest ebb, he is working, he is preparing people. Moses took a long time to be got ready for his life's work. When the time comes, he acts decisively. He rescues, he saves his people. Remember the plagues and the Passover. And he preserves them through danger. Remember the Red Sea, how they were kept safe from Pharaoh's army. And then through difficult times, in the desert without food and water, how he provided for them, water and manna and quails. And we've seen that he wants more than that. He wants them to be able to come near him, to have a relationship with him. Yes, he gives them his laws, the Ten Commandments. 
being God's people means that there are rules to obey. But they're not what makes us God's people. His choice, his mercy come first. And we've seen how he gave them a system of sacrifice, a way of dealing with sin, of making it possible for sinful people like us to come to live in God's presence. And we saw how those sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus, the once and for all perfect sacrifice to do away with sin forever. And how he gave them a tabernacle, a place where he would be with them, a physical reminder to let them know his presence. And that even when they messed up, there was still a hope of restoration, such that despite all their failings, the book of Exodus finishes with the glory of God coming down on the newly built tabernacle as a sign of his presence among them. In Exodus, we have seen the faithfulness of God. And a theme that has run throughout the book has been his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who is and who has no rivals, with no rivals with whom he can be compared. And we have seen a declaration of his character, that he is the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The one who cannot ignore sin, but who is seeking a way for sinful people to be reconciled to him, even at the cost of his own son. This is the God we worship. Even here, back at the beginning of the Bible story, the one calling people to be his, making a way for them to come, making it possible for their sins to be forgiven, the merciful and compassionate God, back there in the Old Testament. And as for us, we have seen the end of the story, the final perfect sacrifice by Jesus of himself, finishing and completing all that Exodus was pointing to. How much more reason do we have to come to God in love, in wonder, and in praise. Not simply for what we might get out of it. Although to some, to some extent, that is a reason we can never leave completely behind. But aspiring and longing with the psalmist that we come to God for his own sake. In love and worship. Because like the deer seeking water in that psalm, our soul thirsts for God. May we be drawn more and more to know God in that way. To understand the depth and height and breadth of his love for us. And so to worship. Amen.